soon as we came to Matthew 8, uh, we, we left the mountain where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. And as soon as he stopped teaching, uh, people started coming to him for their physical needs. And the first man that approached Jesus was the leper. And so Jesus heals this leper, the only Israeli to be healed since Miriam in uh, the Torah. So for over a thousand years, uh, nobody, no Israeli had been healed of leprosy until this man. And Jesus uh, did it as a sign to the religious leadership of Israel. It was a big deal. And, uh, and then he's trying to make his way to Capernaum uh, there on the shore of Galilee. And uh, he is then um, confronted by uh, some servants of a centurion who his child servant is ill. And uh, this centurion is desperate uh, for healing for this boy. And Jesus heals him. And then Jesus, of course, makes it into Capernaum to Peter's house. And what does he find there? Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever. And so Jesus is not getting a break. And then after that happens, all of the multitude just converge on Peter's house. And Jesus is healing the sick. He's dispossessing demons. Uh, he's just ministering to people one after another. And then as this large crowd had converged on Peter's house, you know, of course, Jesus is exhausted, but he's also aware of what happens in these particular contexts with Rome as the overseer of it. They get very nervous. They did throughout history, got very nervous when Jews would get in groups. And, uh, what, and what often happened was Romans died. And so what they did was they would try to break up crowds as fast as they could so that mobs couldn't get organized and so forth. So Jesus was trying to avoid the soldiers coming in and violently separating the crowd. And so it'd be best to just leave and let it disperse. And uh, also the attention that it was drawing from the religious leaders of Israel, uh, that would just hasten problems for Jesus. So what he does is he makes his way to... Uh, the Sea of Galilee, but of course nobody will give him a break, so he's approached by two different men, and uh, one says that he will follow Jesus anywhere he goes, uh, but of course we know Jesus uh, may not have deterred him, but helped him to think that through, what it meant. And then another guy says, uh, I want to follow you, but at first let me bury my dad. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead, and then come follow me, because it's more important to follow Christ than it is to, to deal with the dead. Amen. So finally, Jesus makes it to the shore of the Galilee, to the boat that was there for him. Certainly one of the disciples' boats, a disciple that was a fisherman. And uh, so there we are. So why don't you please stand and uh, I'll read God's word to you. Matthew chapter 8, and I'll pick it up in verse 23. Now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, why are you fearful? O you of little faith. Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. So the men marveled saying, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Let's pray. Well, Father, um, it, it is for you in the Gospels to make much of Jesus. And it is for us to recognize that. 
that just as it was for the disciples, that they were learning more and more about who Christ was and his majesty, Lord, you have communicated these stories to us that we would come to grips with Christ and that our faith would be increased, that we would trust you more. And so, Lord, I pray that that you would help us with that, just as you were doing with the disciples. So thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. All right, so as we went into Matthew chapter 8, I had mentioned the fact that uh, it's easy for us, because we love the attention to be on us, to make Matthew 8, the miracles of Christ, about us. But the intention of the author of the Gospels, the intention of the Holy Spirit, is to make much of Jesus, is to, to help the reader to, to capture a greater vision of Christ, that who he is, his identity, his majesty, his power, would expand in our minds, and that we wouldn't have a little view of Jesus, but that we would have a grand view of Christ. And uh, so that's the intent this morning. There are some practical things in the text, but our focus, uh, as the miracle did with the disciples, when Jesus did this, they turned to him, and they began to speak among one another about what sort of a man are we with that can do this, okay? So let's get into the story. Let's look at it more closely. So we have Jesus and his disciples. They are in the boat, and uh, our place of interest is somewhere between Capernaum on the west coast and Gadara on the east coast of the Galilee. Now, we say the Sea of Galilee, but it's just a lake, understand? Okay, I think it's like 15 by seven and a half miles wide. So it's a big lake. It's not by any means a huge lake in comparison to others. But it was there on the lake, verse 24, it says that a tempest uh, suddenly arose so violently that the waves were covering the vessel. Now, when we think about the lakes in Washington around us, uh, we do not think of a violent tempest, right? Okay. Uh, The only time the lake gets violent is when someone on a larger boat drives past your canoe. And uh, and rather than traversing the waves, you're parallel, and then, of course, it dumps you over. Okay. That wasn't a natural occurrence. That was a man-made occurrence by another boat, okay? The Sea of Galilee, though, though it was a lake, it, it had the potential to be very, very dangerous. Now, there's reasons for that. The lake itself is about 600 feet below sea level. Now, mind you, that's, here's the, the Mediterranean Sea. Here's the Sea of Galilee, 600 feet below it, okay? And they're only about 50 miles apart, the Mediterranean, about 50 miles west of the Galilee. And the Galilee itself was on the northern extreme of the Jordan Basin. And because of how it was situated, it is situated, it gets very warm and it retains its heat. If you've been to the Galilee, uh, you, you come over the highway from, from Nazareth and you just, you just go down and you go down and you go down and you go down. And down in that basin, you notice that there's fruit groves all over the place. And it's actually tropical fruit. Uh, you know, you think of Israel, the desert. Well, they're, they're growing guava, bananas, mango, uh, papaya. All that stuff grows right there. It's when you go further south that there's, there's apples, grapes, olives, uh, lemons, limes. Uh, and then you go a little further south and it's grain. So everything grows in that 120-mile stretch in Israel. Everything in the world can grow there. It is quite fascinating. But 
the, the Galilee basin is just fascinating. And it's, it's, it's beautiful. But the heat settles in there and it retains it. And then to the north is Mount Hermon. And then uh, Mount Hermon is a part of the, the, the Anti-Lebanese mountain range. Okay? Uh, Mount Hermon <coughs> is about 1,000 feet higher than Mount St. Helen at 9,200 feet. And so what happens is from the snow-capped mountain range, which holds cool air uh, for whatever atmospheric reasons, that cold air can rush down over the top of the Galilee. So you have the cold air uh, from the, the, the mountains and that hot air from the Galilee colliding. And then what do you think happens to the surface of the lake? You can suddenly get extreme kinds of weather, and uh, it becomes very, very dangerous uh, to small vessels. Uh, in 1992, a storm there on the Galilee, the, the waves were reaching as high as 10 feet. Have you ever been in a fishing boat? And I don't mean like a commercial fishing boat. I mean a small fishing boat with waves that are 10 feet high. Okay, that's, that's really big. And uh, as I told First Service, and many of you know, some of you have fished with me uh, on the ocean, and I, I didn't do much fishing. I just lean over the rail the whole time. And uh, <coughs> I do my fishing from the shore these days. And uh, well, of course, the danger of a wave is relative to the size of the vessel that you're in, right? Um, I can do, on a massive cruise ship, I can do okay, kind of, okay? But I still have to medicate and, and, and so forth. But um, the, the fishing boat, uh, this particular fishing boat, uh, was found encased in mud on the shore of the Galilee uh, during a record drought. And they've had a few of those over the last 30 years. And someone who knew something about old stuff said, this thing is old and we should probably preserve it. And then after carbon dating the wood, there was 13 different kinds of wood, I think, which is a very interesting thing. But um, the wood dated, carbon dated about 40 BC to 50 AD. Why would that be important to us? Okay, we didn't find Jesus' DNA in the boat, so we're not going to say that he was in it. But, but probably someone during his lifetime was using this particular craft, okay? And uh, you can go see it. They call it the Jesus Boat. Uh, it's there in a museum on the shore of Galilee. It's a very cool museum. The boat is fascinating. And the story of how they preserved it and everything is, is pretty cool. The vessel is 27 feet long, and it's seven and a half feet wide, Okay. And it, it probably looked, uh, probably not this nice, but originally something uh, like that. That's actually a display there in the museum. Um, it's really small. I could not get into that craft. Okay. Nor would I if it was on the water, because a craft that size is a curse to me. So, so a vessel, a 30-foot vessel, battling waves at 10 feet high, imagine what that would be like. It was enough, of course, to cause concern even among seasoned sailors, fishermen, as were some of the men in our story. And then, uh, according to their expert opinion, verse 25 says, uh, they said, we're all going to die. Okay, we are in the process of dying right this second. We are about to be dead. And they were, the, 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 their opinion was so urgent, their distress was so urgent, that they interrupt Jesus' sleep to share that with him. Okay. And I think that's quite hilarious because obviously he didn't want to know. He was sleeping, okay? So the expert fisherman sailmen are panicking while the carpenter is at peace. He's resting. Um, now, the fact that Jesus was asleep 
under these conditions uh, communicates at least two things, okay, I think. Uh, I think it's obvious that he was exhausted from all that he had been doing the last, actually for the last couple days, but that particular day, it was just all day. He was with people, he was serving them, loving them, teaching, performing miracles. But also, circumstantial danger, uh, maritime or otherwise, could not shake Jesus' faith. He just wasn't moved by it. And it it doesn't mean that he was indifferent about it. It just wasn't something that internally moved him to be panicked or to be concerned. We're told in Mark's account that Jesus was asleep in the stern on a cushion. Now, I don't know much about boats, but a stern, in the, he's in the stern. He's under something, uh, probably that, the, the stern is in the back, so he's under that thing. I have the picture up here too, so I'm not just pointing in the air. Uh, to the right side of the screen, if I go inside of anything on a, a boat, I panic and I run back out because my world just starts going crazy. But Jesus is in there, and he's on a cushion, probably the the leather rowing cushion, and he's carefree like a child, like a child who is unaware of danger. But you guys, Jesus, of course, was aware of the danger. He just wasn't concerned about it. And his words to the disciples indicate that it all boiled down to a single issue. What issue was that? Faith. Faith. He said to them, verse 26, why are you fearful Oh, you of little faith. When you are going through circumstances or scary situations, how many of you initially think to yourself, hey, it's just an issue of faith? No, it's, it's an issue of fight or flight. It's an issue of resolving this. It's an issue of escape. It's, it's something else, okay? Faith is not the thing that we think about. But for lack of their lack of faith, they were shaken, but Jesus, in the way he's engaging with them, because of he, and, and because he was sleeping, he's not even jostled by the storm. Okay? Their unbelief was demonstrated by their fear, but Jesus' faith was demonstrated by being at peace, by being chill. Now, under the circumstances, his rebuke, oh, you of little faith, seems a bit harsh. And none of us would want to hear that if we were going down in an aircraft panicking, screaming, and to have Jesus stand up and say, hey, what's wrong with you? You need just your faith. It's just so petty. I wouldn't appreciate it. It seems harsh, but when we consider the amount of time that these men had spent with Jesus and the things that they had saw them do, that explains a little bit. Jesus was and has the prerogative to expect more faith from these men as time went on, doesn't he? I think so. According to Jesus, their lack of faith at this juncture was worthy of a rebuke. It was worthy of rebuke. It wasn't like they just met Jesus. They had been walking with him. They had been witnessing things. It was time. He was expecting more out of them. Now, you know, if you were to think of your faith on a graph, um, turn around so that it means something to you, but from beginning down here on the left and the end of your life or where you're at now, what if I was to graph your faith, what's it doing? Is it straight-lined? What's a straight line when your heart's being monitored? Okay. Do you think that faith should go like this? Or do you think faith should at least have an upward trend? Now maybe, you know, like this. But shouldn't it be increasing over time? Well, of course it should, because that is definitely what Jesus is indicating here. Now he's saying by this juncture, by this time in your experience, 
because of your time with me, because of what you've witnessed, we boys, we should be beyond this. Isn't that what he's saying? Why are you so fearful? You of little faith. It was unacceptable at this point. This is the same for us. The longer we walk with Christ, the more he is expecting from us. He expects our faith, our trust in him to mature, to grow stronger, to be more useful, more beneficial to his glory as the time goes by, just as we expect more from our children as they mature. Amen? Yeah, and if they behave less mature than they should, they have earned themselves a rebuke. And if they stoop too low in their maturity, they earn themselves what? Some divided opinion on that one. It's, this is actually a common thing in the scriptures. Paul, he rebuked the Corinthians for their lack of growth, for their lack of maturity. And the author of Hebrews rebuked the Hebrew Christians for their lack of maturity in the faith. The Corinthians, though they had been in the faith for you know, some time now, uh, Paul rebuked them because he says, by now I should be able to feed you solid food, speaking spiritually. But he says, I can't. I have to feed you milk because you're spiritual infants. In Hebrews 5, the Hebrew Christians had been in the faith for a long time. And uh, the author says, by now you should be teaching others, but you have come to a place where you need someone else to teach you the elementary principles of the faith. And this is, this is not to their credit. And so in chapter 6, he says, now leaving behind the most basic principles, let's move on to maturity. Let's move on. Something was wrong. There was a deficit. So this is normal to, to expect more faith out of people as time goes, goes on. When people lag in their spiritual maturity, it deserves a godly rebuke. Growth is expected. How, how many of you guys, I asked first service, and I think there was like six hands. How many of you guys have read Calvary Chapel Distinctives? A few of you. Now, typically when you read a, a distinctive of a certain denomination, it's almost completely theological. But in... in uh, the Calvary Chapel Distinctives, there's a chapter that is on a venture of faith. It's very unusual for a denominational distinctive, but I love it because what Pastor Chuck is doing is, is he's saying that people need to press themselves to push themselves to where they're requiring, the, 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 into things that requires more faith. We should always be living in such a way that we're dependent upon God. We must, or we will grow, we will, we will atrophy in our faith. If we do not avail ourselves to things in life that require an increase in faith, if we expect little of ourselves in terms of faith, the only thing we'll have is a petty faith. And then when you go through hard times, difficult things with finances, family, or whatever, you will act petty. You will act petty. You will act immature for someone that should be acting mature. You have a wimpy faith, and you know what you deserve for that? Not to be coddled. That's not what Jesus did. He didn't get up from his slumber and give them hugs. He rebuked them. He said, what are you doing? This isn't appropriate, you guys. You should be believing. You should be trusting. By this time, because you've been with me, you should not be in a panic. What they should have been doing, as we should be doing, is always observing the master and say, what is he doing at this moment? How is he responding to our circumstances? Have any of you seen Jesus panic? No. No, because he's sovereign. He's sovereign. He doesn't panic. Okay. When, we, uh, when I first moved here and started pastoring Calvary Chapel, um, we were about this big right here. And uh, we, we, weren't doing, we weren't financially flourishing. And it made my uh, treasurer very nervous at times and uh, would even come to me a little shaken. And uh, she's like, what are we going to do? I said, what we always do. 
we're going to trust the Lord. We're going to teach. And, and, uh, and I said, if, if he chooses uh, to deplete our funds even further, I, I said, I'll go, I'll go work. I mean, I've worked bivocational before. It's not a big deal. And, uh, and she wasn't satisfied with that. So I said, well, I said, let's, let's make a deal. If you see me panic, you can panic about the finances. And she took a deep breath. She said, okay. So I never panicked. And uh, she's been chill ever since. <laughs> and she was worried about me, of course, and my family, because the church was doing their best to support us, which we're very thankful for. But that's, of course, an illustration. We must have our eyes on the Lord, who never panics. But if Jesus was to get nervous, that would be your cue to lose it, okay? But he's not going to do that, okay? <laughs> Jesus is the very opposite of afraid, he was at peace, he was resting peacefully, and they should have followed his example. And then after rebuking the disciples, he gets up and he turns and he rebukes the wind and the sea, and immediately they obeyed him. The wind stopped blowing and the lake was completely calm. Now understand, Jesus didn't just make the wind stop. He calmed the water. If he'd only stopped the wind, it would have taken some time for the lake to settle down. But that's not what happened. The wind and the water both suddenly came to a great calm. The lake is now like glass, and the sound of the wind and the crashing waves has ceased, and the boat is there rocking gently on a crystal sea. And if they hadn't been soaked to the bone, and if there wasn't water in the craft, they would have thought they dreamt it, because it was over that fast. Guys, don't just read over the text. Don't just listen to it. Try to take that in. Ten-foot waves to nothing. All the sound, everything, the emotions, all of it's just done. But there they were. They're, they're still wide-eyed, still panting from all of the exertion. Their knuckles are still white from gripping the oars. They're trembling as adrenaline is still coursing through their bodies. But at that moment, with the wind and the waves, their fear and unbelief was just did the same thing. But it was just in time for the right fear to set in. The right fear, okay? At a word... Understand this, that Jesus exerted his authority over the unassailable might of nature. Just an individual, and they're stuck in the boat with him. You know, it was one thing to heal lepers. It's another thing to give sight to the blind and cause the lame to walk. It's altogether different to bring nature to its knees with nothing but a command. We're just talking raw power, raw power. The creation itself there on the lake yielded to its creator. How stunning, how sobering right? And so the disciples, the text says, they marveled, verse 27, and rightly asked the question, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Who can this be? Or some translations say, what sort of a man is this? Who are we in the boat with? You know, Jesus is now more unusual than before. Things have changed, okay? Things have gone up just a few notches when it comes to his authority and power and might. What sort of a man indeed? Now, just to, as a comparison, you know, the story of Elijah when God had brought a famine over the land of Israel, and then Elijah was commanded to go and pray. And so he pleaded with God seven times for the rain to return and end the drought. And finally, God answered, and God caused the rain to come back to Israel. But coming back to Jesus, Jesus stood up and he didn't pray. 
He didn't ask for a miracle. He caused the miracle himself. He exercised his own authority over the elements of nature, and it yielded to its God. Mark and Luke report that the disciples, after they witnessed this, they were more than just amazed. Luke says that they were afraid. Mark says they were exceedingly afraid. What were they afraid of? They were afraid of Jesus. They were afraid of him. It was no longer about what happened to the wind and the waves. It had everything to do with the one that was now residing in the boat with them who silenced the wind and the waves. What happened to the storm was amazing, but it was nothing compared to the one who made it happen. That makes no difference now, what happened out there. It's who's standing in the boat with us. He he wasn't, you know, before they got into that boat, before the storm and all of that, he was master, he was teacher, he was rabbi. Well, he was still those things, but he was more. And he wasn't to be simply reduced to those things or even, you know, the most privileged office of prophet or priest or king. They're floating on the water with these men was the God-man. This is amazing. So prior to this, their fears were misdirected. The wind and the waves were the least of their worries. You guys, they were captive audience of the one who rules over nature. And if he rules over nature, he rules over absolutely everything. Yeah. Christ is the one to be feared, to be worshipped, admired, and obeyed. You know, when Isaiah the prophet saw Christ seated on a throne, high and lifted up, he said, woe is me, for I'm about to die. Now, we know that it was Christ seated on the throne because John tells us that in his gospel. Jesus is Yahweh. He, he, He says himself, he's Lord God Almighty, Revelation. So Isaiah saw the Lord, and in his presence, he recognized himself as unholy, and he's standing in the presence of the Holy One. He was terrified. He was scared for his life. When John, the apostle, saw Christ in his glory, he fell down as dead, which means he, he, he lost consciousness. He passed out, and it was for fear, and it required that Jesus go and touch him and revive him and say, don't be afraid, but listen. It's great. When Jesus was among us, he shrouded his visible glory to protect us, but he did not hide his power and authority. He didn't do that. Now, as I mentioned last week, people will often say that the only declarations of Jesus of his deity are found in the Gospel of John. It's not true, uh, as we'll see later, okay? But a declaration of deity is just talk. It's just talk. Anyone can declare themselves to be God, can't they? I listened to a TV evangelist do it just couple weeks ago, calling himself Almighty God. So anybody can say that, but only Jesus can take the rage out of the sea and make the wind obey him. I mean, just imagine what it required in nature to stop the storm. As the cold air continued to come down from an entire mountain range, the hot air rising off the ocean, or the, not the ocean, the Sea of Galilee. I mean, imagine all that had to take place for him to completely calm the water. Jesus doesn't have to declare himself to be anyone. His actions speak loud and clear. And just as the disciples' lives were in the hands of Jesus at that moment, your life is in his powerful hands. So why do you fear life's circumstances? Why does uncertainty haunt you into the night? The scripture says that nothing can snatch you away from the one who exercises absolute sovereignty over the universe and the things that unravel in it. You know, our affairs and our circumstances are in his hands as much as our lives are, as it was for the disciples, regardless of our experience. Now, it's true, physical harm or financial ruin may come upon us, but our lives are ever secure with his. Have you guys read Ephesians lately? 
that our life is hid with Christ, that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places? Well, if that's the eternal reality, why do we fuss about the temporal? Why do we do that? That's what he was saying to the disciples. Why are you fussing? You know, the story reveals that, that Jesus should be feared more than anything we face. Not, not because he will snuff us out, but simply because of who he is. I know in, in our culture, we love to talk about fear, the fear of God. Oh, can't I just respect him? No, you respect people. Well, can't I just revere him? No, you revere people. We're talking about someone who transcends all of this, who exercises all power, all wisdom, knowledge. And the scriptures command us to fear God above all else. And the benefit of that is that when you fear him above all else, the fear of everything else fades away. That's the truth. When you fear him, there's nothing left to fear. You know, on the lake that day, a sense of awe dawned upon the disciples. And it must have been just a mixed kind of feeling. You know, and I I told first service, I guess the best way I can describe it is being trapped in a cage with a roaring lion and having one's feet firmly planted on the most stable ground in the world. There's this this sense of security and a sense of insecurity. (laughs) They felt safer than ever, and yet they were afraid. And that's exactly how Jesus would have them. They're saying to each other, who is this man? What sort of man is he? You know, the answer is he's the God-man. He is the healer of the sick, the dispossessor of demons. He's the protector of the weak and the commander of the storm. As the ancient fathers of the church said, he's the only begotten God. So Jesus must have aroused just a mixed bag of feelings because he was, you know, meek and, and mild. You could let your guard down and you could act casual around him. But after commanding a storm and suffering his rebuke, you wouldn't know what to do with yourself. I mean, when he cleared the temple, the disciples must have just stood there like, what are you doing? <laughs> just amazing. Not knowing what to do with yourself. The disciples feared him, but they couldn't get enough of him. They wanted to worship him. They wanted to shout for joy because of him, and they wanted to run for cover all at the same time. Tozer says that we hide in God to be saved from him. Didn't we take refuge in Christ from the wrath of God? As an illustration, you know, years ago, I was put into a position where I had to confront a group of people for doing something both extremely dangerous and illegal. And at the time, uh, my wife was eight months pregnant, and because of the incident, she could have been injured. She was not But we were out in our yard on 4th of July when a truck drove past our house and they threw a pipe bomb out about 20 feet feet from Shandy and she fell over. And then, of course, the the truck of people, you know, drove off. And shortly after I got Shandy into the house, I went back outside to assess the damage that the shrapnel had made to my trailer. And then as I was doing that, these people drove past again and they chucked out another explosive into my yard. And so, uh, Pastor Greg, who was formerly an assistant pastor of mine, uh, he was living with me. And so, we jumped into my truck and we chased these people down right out here on Pearl Street. And when they finally pulled over because of my wild display of aggressive driving, I jumped out and I confronted the driver. And because of my unsavory disposition, he and his five passengers got out of the truck and they sat down on the grass submissively. It was really fun. And I was spewing threats at them as we were waiting for the police. Well, I hadn't realized, you know, what state I was in until I looked at Pastor Greg's face, who's just standing there frozen. And he didn't know if he should help or if he should sit down on the grass with everybody else. (laughs) He hadn't done a thing. He just 
stood there and he stared at me. And you know, I wasn't being aggressive or violent toward Greg, but being in my presence at that moment in that way made him feel very uneasy. You know, he knew I wasn't a danger to him, but he didn't know me in that way. Okay, it was very unsettling to him. I was the same person, but I was more than Greg was aware of. Okay. Now, I imagine that being one of the disciples in the boat with Jesus must have been something like that. The one they formerly knew as meek and mild was more powerful, and he was more dangerous than any deadly storm. I mean, what do you do at that moment? What do you do? How do you act now? You know, they wanted to cling to him, and they wanted to back away from him. They were terrified, and they were amazed. They were drawn to him, but they were scared. Imagine, stuck in the boat with him. What sort of a man is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him? He was the same Jesus as before, but he was much, much more. What do you do with him now? What will you do with him now? You know, he is greater than you've ever imagined. He transcends your imagination in his majesty, in his sovereignty, and his power. On the lake that day, his power was restrained. He, he didn't even break a sweat, even, the, even though the boys had sweated profusely, to no avail against the storm. It's a crazy comparison. It isn't the storm that should concern us. We shouldn't fear the storm or anything else that shakes us. We should fear the one who calms the storm. We should fear the one who's standing in the boat with us, not with them, with us. Jesus says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He's in the boat with us, and we should not fear. We should trust him so that we're not moved. The psalmist, and I could quote psalm after psalm like this, but he says, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. He's saying that the Lord will give you peace in your circumstances. Paul said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses or transcends our understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. What he's saying is, is that if we commit ourselves to God in the midst of the wildest circumstances, he says that Jesus will keep us from being petty. Keep us from being petty in our response to the storm. We can look to him and we can receive his peace, which is, I believe it's contagious. It will be transferred to us and we could be at rest when he is. So, of course, I meet with people all week, every week. I hear one story after another, tragedy upon tragedy. And uh, what I know is that as things change down here, nothing has ever changed up there. But the Lord remains with us. And he can strengthen us. He can teach us to trust him. And we can be at peace at whatever comes our way. So I don't know what's going on with you today uh, or what you're anticipating will be going on with you tomorrow. But I would love to pray with you after service and encourage you and uh, to remind you of the one that's in the boat with you. Amen. Why don't you stand up and we'll pray. I'll get you out of here.